Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. So, how's your week been, Shane? This is Friday, right? No. It's oh. Friday two weeks from now. Oh, good. Because <laughs> I haven't been losing track. <laughs> it's a special kind of Friday called Wednesday. <laughs> oh, hey, it's hump day. So this means it's like half over, right? Yeah. Mm, You're sure. not answering my question. Uh, it's been a good week. It's been a – I'm upright. So that seems to be a, a, a positive trend. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the hand grenades and drug deals edition. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I couldn't choose between hand grenade or drug deal, I have to tell you. Rudy is going to blow us all up. Blow us all up with his I, drug deal. I like it that they're both phrases used to describe the same person in the same context. <laughs> I mean, the metaphor doesn't even really make sense. Wait, which one? The hand grenade. Like, right? So... No, that's, you know, he's they've pulled the but pin. But who pulled the pin? Who threw him? Rudy like, pulled his own pin. <laughs> I mean, he was and he's a throwing bomb, himself around. Yeah. <clears throat> oh, boy, oh, boy. We're going to try and get to the bottom of that. Uh, I'm Shane Harris. I'm here in the new jungle studio with Susan Hennessy and Ben Wittes. Hi, guys. Yo. Hi. Tammy has just, like, fled the town. Done. Fled she's the in, She's quite literally in Vegas. <laughs> I love it, right? Yeah. <clears throat> what happens in Vegas, baby? Yeah, it stays in Vegas. Yeah, it's probably much nicer there. It's very rainy here today in Washington, but I suppose we need the rain. God is crying. We're, we're certainly, <laughs> getting, certainly getting a lot of it. Yeah, we are. There's a lot. There's a lot coming down from heaven. And that's what the listeners have tuned in for. It's <laughs> the weather report. A meditation. <clears throat> All right. It is okay, DC. let's get to it. On the podcast this week, kids, testimony. What? <laughs> <laughs> you need to go work for the Capital Weather Gang, my friends over there. Um, testimony on Capitol Hill this week reveals that Rudy Giuliani, aforementioned hand grenade, was running a shadow foreign policy on Ukraine, a.k.a. a drug deal. Um, the White House vows not to cooperate with the impeachment investigation at all. And Turkish forces move into Syria, sparking a new national security crisis. Let's start with um, – I say the testimony on the Hill, which is still happening, right? So I mean, we have actually uh, the for, the current ambassador to the EU, Gordon Sundland, who is kind of shaping up to be key to this whole effort to pressure Ukraine to launch investigations that would help the president. He is going up tomorrow. We've already seen Marie Yovanovitch, the former ambassador to the U- to Ukraine. Uh, we've seen Fiona Hill, who ran the Russia and Europe portfolio uh, for the National Security Council. Uh, we've seen uh, uh, George Kent go up, who had the uh, Ukraine, among others, portfolio for the State Department. And it seems like they are starting to paint a picture that, to my mind, if we start with the whistleblower complaint as kind of like phase one of how this unfolded, then the text messages between Sunland and Volker and Ambassador Taylor kind of provided a new layer. This seems to me, Susan, sort of like yet another layer where we're now getting the impressions of people who were working in the administration and were many of them either because of direct interactions they were having or even indirectly starting to realize it was dawning on them that Rudy Giuliani was sort of at the center of something involving Ukraine that was totally bypassing the normal official structure. What are some of the key things that you think we're learning? And particularly, I'm interested when you think about Fiona Hill's testimony, because that, to me, really was some of the most uh, a damning insofar as she also talked about her conversations with John Bolton, who was the national security advisor through all this. Yeah, so I think there are two primary things that we're sort of seeing being accomplished kind of in this batch of testimony. Um, so one is the further establishment of essentially the worst case scenario of, of sort of a an actual quid pro quo, an extortionate effort against the Ukrainian president using this military aid. So um, we're starting to fill in the blanks there. The other thing that's happening is essentially the elimination of the innocent explanation. 
So whenever you see a president conducting foreign policy, right, we've talked about how like the question of motivation is central here. And a lot of diplomacy looks like like quid pro quos. And so kind of the core question is, you know, the, the thing that makes this really, really bad is that Trump is doing it on behalf of his own political interests. Now, the White House has sort of made peeps about, no, 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 he just cared about anti-corruption efforts in Ukraine. And somehow this was an unorthodox but otherwise sort of kosher policy. I think Fiona Hill's testimony, George Kent's testimony, Yovanovitch's testimony make really, really clear that that is not what was going on. The United States government had an articulated policy. It was the policy that had been uh, supported, at least in public, by the White House. It was a policy that had bipartisan support and, of course, authorized and appropriated funding behind it from Congress. Um, and the entire United States government is working towards this policy of supporting Ukraine and against sort of holding off the occupation, the Russian occupation in Crimea. Along Along comes Rudy Giuliani, who is not just operating outside that policy, but actually counter to it. And so what you see is this is not a case of the, the president using lots of different methods to try and accomplish his policy. This is the president you know, apparently directing Rudy Giuliani, or at least permitting Rudy Giuliani, to actively undermine U.S. policy in order to achieve personal political goals. And essentially, his own administration, including his close per personal appointees, not career deep state bureaucrats, but John Bolton are horrified and are working to try and prevent it, to counter it, to understand what's going on. Now, one thing I think that was really interesting about Fiona Hill's testimony is how much she reportedly quoted John Bolton, mm -hmm. how much she placed John Bolton in the room and Bolton is the one calling Rudy a hand grenade and doesn't want a part of his right, drug deal. Right, she is repeating him. She said that John Bolton is the one who told her to go to the NSC lawyer, uh, presumably because they thought that there was some sort of legal issue or criminal issue. And so that is something that makes it clear that the next sort of target of congressional focus is John Bolton himself and that this is not something that's just going to focus on kind of the outer, you know, edges of, of people that who maybe you, names you've never heard of. She was pretty clear in saying, you know, John Bolton was very much a part of this, has lots of sort of individual knowledge. It is one thing that makes it a little bit unusual. Why haven't we heard members of Congress talking about needing to talk to John Bolton yet, at least not publicly? Ben, do you think that this firms up the Democrats' case and possibly become some Republican members' case too for impeachment or – is the story now sort of growing tentacles and going down different paths that might start to be confusing for people and it's bringing in Ukrainians and it's starting to sound a little bit like Leferrus here? I mean, what do you think? Is this ultimately help the, the, the case or is it becoming a distraction? Well, I think the first point is – the first lesson of this is one that we talked about before, which is never cross John Bolton. You know, back when he was appointed – we talked about how, okay, he's a crazy person, but he's a bureaucratic power player and he really plays for keeps. And, you know, he's very competent and adept at manipulating bureaucracies. His mustache will haunt your dreams. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Remember we said when Ty Cobb quit, we said John Bolton's mustache to Ty Cobb's mustache, there can be only one. Well, you know – John Bolton's mustache has become a key witness here and, you know, the president sort of dismissed him under uh, circumstances that I think the president may come to regret and a lot will actually turn, whether it should or not, on the way Bolton presents the material that he has. Uh, I do think that the case for impeachment is very firmed up. And the reason uh, – of course, we haven't seen the actual transcripts of these people's testimonies yet. But the other thing that's worth mentioning about them is that they are long. So, you know, Fiona Hill was testifying for something like 10 hours. Right. Um, and and Marie Ivanovich was testifying for a lot of hours as well. And so I think we're we're probably dealing with a lot of granularity of information at this stage now. And so let's just uh, – you mentioned at the beginning the layers here, but you missed what I think is the key layer. And so the first layer 
is the text of the phone call itself as summarized by that call memo. And that presents a prima facie case that there's something uh, at a minimum uh, grotesque and untoward in the substance of the request to the Ukrainians, but also uh, suggestive of, an, of a very inappropriate quid pro quo relationship. Any suggestion that there was no quid pro quo in that was kind of undermined by the release, as you described, of those text messages, which show that at least some of the people involved were kind of walking around saying, gosh, is, is this a quid pro quo here? <laughs> um, and then to the extent that you respond to that by saying, well, okay, maybe Gordon Sondland said, no, there's no quid pro quo here, so there's doubt – well, now Gordon Sondland says, actually, all I meant by that is that the president said that there wasn't, but I don't really know if he was telling the truth. And so I think that sort of the more you peel back the layers of this story, the more it actually looks like, as Susan described, uh, the initial kind of worst case scenario is exactly what happened. And that's before you get to the fact that then Rudy Giuliani is running this business with apparently a bunch of criminals on the side for side know, hustle. a little side hustle that they get arrested at Dulles Airport while trying to leave the country. With one-way tickets. With one-way tickets to Vienna. as well, They're like going to a spy swap or something. <laughs> um, and so I, I just imagining Rudy. Rudy even I think compared himself to Tom Hanks and Bridge of Spies in an interview that I saw. But yeah. Anyway. So I, I mean I I don't really understand. Like I could see the argument that there are so many threads to pull on here that it could get sort of optically complicated to start pulling on a bunch of them. But that's a tactical argument. Right. It's not a substantive argument. The subs as a substantive matter, I can't see the side of this that isn't ugly. I can't see the read on it that that isn't, you know, bad. And I can't see how how the facts today aren't much worse than the facts at the time the whistleblower complaint and, was and first made public. And it also seems too, like your point about Sundlin saying, as we reported in the Post, that what he's going to say about Trump's text and I was just relaying what he told me and I don't know if he was telling the truth. I mean, people are really in it for themselves now. And I even wonder now with these Rudy Giuliani associates being arrested as Igor Fruman and Lev Parnas. I mean, now you've got two guys who are arrested on campaign finance violations who might, in fact, have an incentive to talk about other things that they know about what Rudy was doing with Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, Gordon Sondland's saying, you know, I was only saying it. I, I'm not saying it was true. I'm only saying that the president said it. It's like it's like a criminal who thinks like you have to tell me you're a cop. It's like a constitutional <laughs> binding constitutional principle or something. Right. Where like it was transparently obvious what they were doing. It was transparently obvious from the outset why Sondland wrote the text messages saying, "To be clear, there is no quid pro quo going on here. Absolutely zero crimes being committed." Thanks, XOXO Gordon. Right? That was clear what was happening. Now he's trying to go back and essentially salvage himself and his own reputation by saying, well, I was just passing on, uh, you know, I, I was just passing on a message from the president. You know, it's also pretty clear that he's not someone, or at least it appears that he's not someone who's inclined to walk into Congress and perjure himself or give false testimony. And so part of these leaks in advance, and keep in mind one reason why Adam Schiff is saying that they are not having these transcripts be released yet, it's because he says, we don't want people to see what other people said. We don't want people to be able to coordinate false testimony. And one reason why someone like Sondland might release that, leak that information early or or, or make it known to the press early is to signal to everybody else who's involved in this, I'm not going in there to lie. I'm going to say what actually happened, or at least some version of what actually happened. And so the rest of you should conduct yourselves accordingly. And so it's not just that Sunlin is going to go in and talk about his piece of this. His piece, of course, involves communication directly with the president himself. But it's also how are other actors going to organize themselves in response, right? The message from pretty much everyone, from Kurt Volker to Sunlin to Fiona Hill to every other person is everybody is going in there and laying all their cards on 
the table here. Um, and so anybody who thinks that they are going to get away with sort of telling half-truths or trying to keep themselves out of it, that's not going to be a fruitful path. And so we're going to see more and more people sort of adding their grain of sand to the scale here. Hey, here's the little piece I know. And then Congress will have to sift through all of that and actually assemble a, you know, a, a persuasive and comprehensive picture out of it. And Ben, to Susan's point, and I think that, that that clearly seems right, that everyone is going in and laying the cards on the table and is not trying to cover for the White House or for the president. I mean, maybe we've just become so cynical that that is precisely what we would expect people in their position to do. Maybe not career diplomats and, and people like Fiona Hill. But do you think that this is happening is a signal that the people involved in this realize this is very serious uh, and this is some kind of, you know, we've, we've mangled the crossing the Rubicon metaphor in a previous show. But I mean, it strikes me that if a guy like Gordon Sundlin, who clearly, I mean, compromised his own principles insofar as taking back his rejection of Trump and doing anything he could to get an ambassadorship and get into the senior ranks is going in there now and preparing to tell the truth. I mean, loyalty is not really sort of the the order of the day here. And I just wonder if these Honest people, loyalty, Shane. Honest, honest loyalty, loyalty, right. And I just wonder if they've all decided like this thing is going south or is what's happening here is people just saying, I'm not, you know, I don't have any real choice except to go in and tell the truth. Well, so this gets into the subject that I think you want to uh, talk about in the second segment, but I I do think the with the White House taking the position that it will not cooperate at all, and it's simply going to defy every document production request and every witness uh, testimony request that puts these individual public servants either because they're good public servants who feel a you know, responsibility to a congressional request or because they're, you know, self-serving, uh, self-protective people or sometimes both. Uh, it puts them in a position where they have to decide, you know, do I want to tow the uh, White House line or do I want to kind of, you know, act on my own and and uh, and different ones make different judgments in this regard. So, you know, Rudy Giuliani, of course, uh, is not answering. And uh, Secretary of Defense Esper the, uh, yesterday said, by the way, I'm not I'm defying the subpoena, too. But these individual State Department and in Volcker's case, special envoy, you know, people have made different judgments. And ever since you know, Jim Comey went up and testified and kind of bucked the assumption that there could be an executive privilege assertion over his testimony. That option has been available to people. There's no there's no way you can force somebody who wants to testify to shut up. All you can do is give cover to those, uh, you know, who want to sort of pull the Don McGahn approach. But we are seeing one interesting variation, which is that, of course, former officials you could never prevent from testifying because you couldn't fire them, right? So the, the White House or the executive branch asserts executive privilege. If somebody within the executive branch defies that, the White House can't stop them from testifying with some sort of injunction against them, um, you know, as long as it's not things like classified information. Um, but they can fire them. And so one thing that's actually really interesting about what's going on right now is for people like Bill Taylor, uh, Ivanovich, and George Kent, these are people who have all been instructed by the secretary, uh, the secretary of state, Mike Pompeo, to not testify, directed essentially to not testify in this bizarre sort of White House letter, and yet are both going to testify and also not resigning their positions. So clearly they're accepting the risk that they might be fired for this. Certainly this is something that will come with career consequences, but it actually is kind of an interesting phenomenon of the career civil service and this, um, the foreign service rules actually say that foreign service officers are required to comply with congressional subpoenas. Um, that said, the executive branch could alter those rules. But it's basically a group of foreign service officers, or at least a handful, saying, we are going to go testify to Congress and we dare you to fire us over this. It's almost like the executive branch isn't entirely mm -hmm. unitary. It's, it's funny. <laughs> That's well, happening. let's use that as a segue just to start talking then about this letter um, from October 8th. Now, I know that technically I am sitting here reading the signature of Pat Cipollone, counsel to the president, on this letter. 
I am not entirely persuaded that he wrote it <laughs> or at least the bulk of it. There are passages in here that just sound like the president talking. And as I think many legal scholars have gone through this and you guys have written about eloquently on lawfare, I think even calling this a legal document does disservice to the law. Like this is not a legal document. It's a political document. It's, it's a, an assertion. You know, Ben, maybe you wanted to sort of take a first crack at it, framing for people how not grounded in law this ostensibly legal argument is that the White House is making that it simply will not cooperate with the House impeachment process to give a lot of reasons for that. But it, this does not strike, I think, most people as a defensible argument if you were going to try and take it to court. Yeah. I mean, the the, the basic argument is we declare the process illegitimate and we announce that it has no due process protections from, for the president and that you haven't had a vote and that there are all these deficiencies in it and therefore it's constitutionally deficient and we don't have to participate in it. And the problem with that is uh, – well, there's a few problems with it. The first is that there are no actual constitutional requirements about what constitutes a legitimate impeachment inquiry save that the House – uh, votes articles of impeachment, which is it's entitled to do under its own rules. Uh, and secondly, the integrity of a demand for information from the House to the executive branch doesn't really depend on the executive branch's sense of whether things are legitimate. It actually depends on the legal propriety of the request, which is a if if everybody got to decide. Uh, whether they like the process that's producing legal demands on them, you know, the system wouldn't would sort of grind to a halt. Uh, it's not a legal document. It's a kind of a Trumpy chest thumping. It actually reminds me a lot of the letter that Trump's uh, doctor during the campaign. I oh yeah, his, his name was Bornstein, Bornstein, right? Wrote about how this, you know, he'd examined Trump, and this would be the healthiest person ever to be president, and you know, beat your chest um, like King Kong, and it's kind of like that, and like that, which turned out to have been dictated by Donald Trump. Uh, this just does have the sound of a letter that. Uh, bears the name of Pat Cipollone, but is in fact heavily influenced by the voice of the client. Do you know what it reminds me of? Mm. Um, this morning, my 20-month-old didn't want to put her shoes on. And so we sort of ran around. I chased her around the house. And then finally, I had to pin her up against the couch and just grab her foot and shove it into like a bright pink sneaker while she was howling the entire time. This is a legal document equivalent of that, right? It's just an assertion of general non-cooperation without any real articulation of why. And what it comes down to is brute strength at the end of the day over who is going to win this. And so I think what the White House is doing is this is a plainly absurd argument. They have not only do they have no grounds to uh, refuse to comply based on these process objections, it is itself an affront to another branch to say, we, the White House, are going to dictate to you, the House of Representatives, how you are going to conduct an impeachment inquiry, because the Constitution says that is the House of Representatives' job. So again, getting back into the way uh, articles of impeachment against Richard Nixon were framed in some cases, uh, you know, aggregating to oneself authorities, you know, granted to another branch was part of, uh, you know, part of the argument there. What this really is about is the White House sees that Republicans in Congress are actually don't really have the stomach to defend the president's substantive conduct. We've seen very, very few Republicans who are willing to go out on record and say, I don't have any problems with the call. I don't have any problems with the president holding up military aid in exchange for investigations into Joe Biden. We've seen lots and lots of deflection. And we've seen this sort of squishy middle of Republicans sort of organizing around this idea of a process objection, because that allows them to scream about Adam Schiff, to scream about the process, and as a result, to not have to be talking about what the president actually did. And so this was a White House letter sort of attempting to add a little bit of fuel to that fire. Now, this 
puts a choice before Nancy Pelosi. So she can decide either to actually have a vote, right? And so this isn't an impeachment vote. We're talking about a formal vote to or a vote to formally authorize an impeachment inquiry as sort of a prelude to, uh, you know, to, to an eventual impeachment right, vote. Rather than her just saying it as she did in the press conference. Right. So there are the reasons for not doing that are there, there's a long list of reasons for that. And, and we can sort of talk about them. And here. she said she's not going to do it. And she has said she's not going to do that. Now, one one reason why you actually might decide to hold that vote is essentially as a way to call the president's bluff and say, all right, fine, we'll have a vote. You know, you said you'll, you know, basically we'll have a vote if you agree to cooperate and produce these documents um, to kind of eliminate this process objection that some Republicans are, are organizing around. I think Nancy Pelosi actually said, we're not here to call bluffs. And so she has essentially said her strategy here is to not at all engage with what she views as bad faith sort of process objections and that she is going to conduct an impeachment inquiry the way she wants to conduct an impeachment inquiry. Um, and if what Republicans sort of want to howl about are these frivolous process objections, she appears to be saying that she will trust uh, voters to see through that. Um, it also might be a question of essentially she's not going to have her hand forced at this point, right? Maybe they'll have an a vote before an, a formal impeachment inquiry at a later point, you know, but, but she's preserving the options for now. Ben, do you think that it was smart for her not to take the vote? No. Why? Well, so look, the procedural posture in which this impeachment inquiry is taking place is defensible. Uh, that said, it is also different from the posture in which the two previous major impeachment inquiries have taken place, both of which involved in the Nixon case and in the Clinton case a formal vote by the House to authorize the Judiciary Committee to conduct it. And that was a kind of solemnizing moment. I, I remember it very vividly in the case of the Clinton impeachment. And it was, a, it was a big deal and it did mark something. Now, is it legally significant? Probably not, uh, although, although it has some arguably technical significance in the context of a uh, a couple pieces of litigation, but uh, I, I'm perfectly willing to say that it has no legal significance. That said, I do think when Republicans complain that there's been no vote authorizing an impeachment inquiry, so it's just a kind of freewheeling sort of thing, that's an argument that Nancy Pelosi is allowing them to have by not having a vote. She clearly has the numbers to pass such a thing. I think uh, – and I think it would be better optically, honestly, if she just did it. Can I just press on one thing there too? Does she definitely have the numbers? I mean one, she's, she is a master vote counter, which might suggest in her hesitation that she's not entirely sure that she has the votes um, or maybe the count has reached it. Yeah, the count, the count has, has reached, reached a, a majority okay, of so, absolute okay, so take members who at least support an inquiry. So I wonder too though, is she – it's an interesting question. Is she trying to give her members some cover to not have to take that vote, which could be read in their districts as a vote for impeachment? And by the way, I think there's maybe even some suggestion in the day that we're seeing that significant numbers of Americans think that impeachment equals removal. So it's not even clear that the sort of civics 101 lesson has been held here to explain to people what we're talking about. Or, I mean, <clears throat> you know, maybe to Susan's point, it's just it's like, you know, you and the toddler, right? It's like we're not going to give in to your tantrums. There's absolutely no reason we don't have to do this. So we're not going to do it. It did seem it seemed like there was surprise that she didn't take it, though. Yeah. So, look, there is one argument that she wouldn't have to give up all that much, uh, you know, and, and it would take away this one argument. That said, there are things that she would have to give up that she doesn't want to currently do, um, right? So, so the process objections will essentially continue unless and until the House can say that Trump has precisely exactly the same procedural protections that were available to Bill Clinton and Richard Nixon, even though there were some differences between the Nixon and Clinton impeachments. But it, it would be sort of a, a strong counter to say, look, uh, Trump has the exact same uh, sort of protections as Bill Clinton. Clinton had, um, you know, those protections included things like allowing counsel to be present, allowing for the cross-examination of witnesses. Um, and you could imagine Trump's attorneys and, and Trump 
and his attorneys basically using these procedural pr- protections to delegitimize the inquiry and turn it into an absolute circus and just sort of throw sand in everybody's eyes and, and actually cause a lot of problems and are not engaging this in, in sort of in, in a good faith way at all. Also keep in mind that when, uh, you know, when the House voted on the Clinton impeachment inquiry, Ken Starr had already delivered his report. Basically, 100% of the fact-finding, and Ben wrote the book on it, so you can correct me if I'm wrong, almost all of the fact-finding had already been completed well in advance. Whereas in this case, the fact-finding is still very much ongoing, at least as it relates to Ukraine. And so... You can talk about sort of procedural fairness to the president, but the intention of procedural fairness is not to allow the president to interfere with the collection of evidence and the assembly of the records. So one reasonable response would be to say, sure, he can have the same procedural protections as Bill Clinton had when we get to a similar stage in the process. And the similar stage of the process is when the House Intelligence Committee and the Oversight Committee and the Judiciary Committees and everybody has gathered their evidence and we are now referring articles in through the Judiciary Committee to actually sort of move this to the next stage of of development, then we have an apples to apples comparison in which sort of extending this vote isn't just going to give Trump sort of another opportunity for mischief. And I do think Nancy Pelosi has to sort of balance the uh, legitimacy gains and losses of not having a vote, right, allowing Republicans to continue to to object on process grounds against the potential legitimacy gains and losses of what the president could do to delegitimize the process with sort of these these additional protections, assuming that she recognizes that the only way to actually tamp down on these sort of claims is to give precisely the same protections that Bill Clinton had. Yeah. I, I mean, I think the question of whether there should be a vote authorizing the impeachment inquiry and the question of what the precise organizational framework and protections that the president gets within that are not necessarily the same thing. And I I do agree with you that there's something to be said for treating somewhat modestly the ab- ability of Rudy Giuliani and and the president's lawyers to make mischief within this process. But I do think that's a sort of separate question from whether you would want a vote by the House to get the thing started in the first place. All right. Let's move on to a different kind of unfolding crisis. Um Last week, President Trump had a phone conversation with President Erdogan of Turkey uh, and shortly thereafter announced publicly that he would be withdrawing U.S. forces from Syria, where they have been deployed essentially as a kind of tripwire or a barrier from keeping Turkish forces from coming into the country and cleaning out the uh, Kurdish fighters who have been so instrumental in assisting the U.S. in defeating ISIS. I think some might even argue that they had done the lion's share of the work in defeating ISIS, or at least you know temporarily. And then, as if on cue, uh, Turkish forces come rolling in, uh, and now we're sort of, I guess, in day what four here or so of, a, of an ongoing situation where uh, there have been reports of war crimes and various atrocities. The Kurdish fighters who were guarding ISIS prisoners in Syria have, in some cases, it appears, had to abandon those posts as they said they would. To repel the Turkish advance, which has resulted in the freeing or the, I guess, the jailbreak, really, of some of these ISIS fighters. Ben, how should we be reading this? Because it strikes me that, you know, obviously, we talked about this before on the podcast that, you know, Jim Mattis resigned over this. Now, exactly what people feared was going to happen is unfolding. Um, and it's, it, it's hard for me to sort of wrap my mind around why Donald Trump, even with his sort of idiosyncrasies and impulses would think that it was a good idea to take an action that is going to lead to ISIS fighters being freed and having the ability to regroup, possibly rebuild a caliphate and and launch new attacks. I, I, I guess I'm not asking you to climb inside his mind here, but am I overreading the national security threat that has just been created here? No, I don't think you are. I mean, I think, look, the gross presentation of the issue so far in public um, is that a whole lot of ISIS people have been allowed to go free. A relatively stable, tense border situation is now a 
uh, hot shooting war. And the Russians and the Syrians have come into an area that was previously held by allies, i.e. the Kurds and the, the SDF. And Erdogan uh, has crossed an international frontier. Um, oh, and that's before you get to the sort of less tangible, less obvious points like that U.S. prestige and commitment to allies has been sort of rendered a mockery. And, you know, we look extremely capricious and foolish and stupid, and that's because we deserve to. So I, I don't think you're overstating it at all. You know, all of that is itself before you start talking about what to whatever level this is going to become or is already a humanitarian catastrophe. And so I think it's a perfectly fair question. Why, why is this the sort of thing that even Donald Trump would want to do? And I think the answer to that, you know, probably lies in the fact that he's been kind of itching to get out and, you know, he wanted to be the guy who smashed ISIS and also didn't do foreign wars, right? Which, of course, are a little bit in tension with one another, right? Um, Touch. <laughs> uh, and so then you smash ISIS and you kind of boast about how you've smashed ISIS, but you're aware that you haven't really gotten out of any of these places that you've bashed your predecessors for getting into. And so I think he you know, back in December had this idea that he was just going to walk away. And he said it publicly at the time. We we wanted to destroy ISIS. That was all we were here for. And now we're, now we're out. And Erdogan has kind of egged him on in this. And he got talked out of it last time and kind of bullied out of it last time by a combination of resignations of officials and European pressure and Jim Mattis resigning and Lindsey Graham having a temper tantrum. And this time he just kind of, I guess, thought, okay, it was time to just do it this time. And it's a little bit like, you know, these withdrawals from trade agreements where people, you know, spirit things off his desks until one time the letter remains on his desk and he actually does it. And so this time he just did it and he doesn't, you know, think hard about consequences ever. Yeah, I think that is the answer, right? The, the president isn't careful and isn't especially smart and isn't especially knowledgeable and doesn't wait to uh, even attempt to understand the consequences of his action. Um, and he got played by Erdogan and he's gotten played by Erdogan again uh, and he got played this time. And so now he has to come up with some sort of justification and make it look as though he wanted it to look this way all along. Uh, you know, on uh, September 27th, of last year, so just about a year ago, Trump said, quote, they fought with us, they died with us, they died, we lost tens of thousands of Kurds, died fighting ISIS, they died for us and with us and for themselves, they died for themselves, but they're great people, and we don't forget, I don't forget. President Trump this morning in the Oval Office saying of the Kurds, among other things, the battle has, quote, nothing to do with us, saying that American soldiers should be should not be in harm's way as, quote, they shouldn't be as two countries fight over land. Quote, this has nothing to do with us. The Kurds know how to fight. And as I said, they're not angels. They're not angels. <laughs> This is who Donald Trump is. He is someone who says whatever is convenient in that particular moment. Um, and what is convenient now is, is actually not just for him to acknowledge that he is going back on a longstanding, you know, very, very clearly articulated promise to partners, but instead trying to suggest as though the Kurds somehow have it coming. And so I don't know how you can look at those statements without an understanding that Donald Trump has made this decision. 
I don't actually know that it's possible to get inside his head to understand why he made it. Is it because he has hotels in Istanbul? Is it because he didn't like what he had for breakfast this morning? Is it because he really just is as dumb as he looks and Erdogan can talk him into this stuff? For whatever reason, he made this decision. And so he's actually not interested in doing anything now to counter the national security consequences or the much less the humanitarian crisis. And so instead, he's now pivoted to offering this message to his base. And the message to his base is, these are bad people that you don't really need to care about. And so, you know, for Republicans in, in Congress, I, I think the question is, how long will Lindsey Graham be willing to stamp his feet and hold his breath? It's not that I disagree with what he's saying about sort of how outrageous all of this is. But what did you expect, man? Like, yeah. this is this is exactly who Donald Trump is. He told you this is who he was. And like and shame on you for be for believing him or more accurately pretending to believe him for all this time. Well, I think to your second point, yeah, maybe that's more pretending to believe him because what I think Republicans have shown in all of this is a remarkable degree as they have, frankly, you know, throughout the administration to compartmentalize and essentially to say, OK, we profoundly disagree with your decision here on Syria. But we're also, you know, essentially right now backing you up on this question of Ukraine. Which makes me think that the politics such that they are of Syria are not really going to factor in all that much with the politics of impeachment unless the unless the voters start to, you know, synthesize these things and wait a second, this is a portrait of a president who is potentially corrupt and out of control. But I don't see that happening. I don't see them moving in the polls. I think to your point, Susan, they'll the, probably people are listening to the president and saying, Yeah, why are we putting ourselves in harm way for, the, for these people who we don't really owe anything to. Yeah, so I I don't know how separate it is going to be possible to keep these things. And obviously the the human power to delude oneself or or compartmentalize if you choose to formulate it that way is pretty vast, but I do think that the worse Ukraine gets the more tempting it is for people who, for one reason or another, feel politically compelled to support the president on Ukraine, the, the more tempting it is to be outraged by something else like Syria. And so Lindsey Graham is a good example here. He, for whatever reason, feels compelled to back the president uh, on Ukraine stuff. And so Partly, I think, as a surrogate for that, he stamps his feet with particular energy on on Syria stuff. And at what point the two collapse into one another, I think, you know, not to suggest that Lindsey Graham may lack principles or anything, but will be totally poll driven. You know, if 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 Trump's polls uh, stay more or less where they are, then I suppose people will be able to keep them separate. But if you start seeing that, you know, real deterioration in his poll position, then people will find that all these other things kind of flow back to how they should understand the impeachment. Susan, do you think that if there were and nobody is wishing for this, another terrorist attack by ISIS, whether it were in a European country or whether it were here, uh, and it was clear that it was because of these reconstituted forces, do you think that the president would take a major hit for that? Or would it sort of conversely become an opportunity for him to go in and you know, crush terrorists again that would then potentially redound to his benefit because you know presidents in wartime tend to get public support behind them? I mean, are people going to forget why the attack happened because these guys went free? Yeah, so I think the reality is that the manifestation of terrorist attacks, either here or in Europe, are highly unlikely to be so clean as a foreign, right? Somebody escapes, uh, you know, from, from Kurdish detention in Syria, travels, you know, back to Europe and commits a terror offense. And so I think it's, um, you know, even if there were um, attacks that could be sort of reasonably attributed to this, you know, to, to this particular decision, my guess is sort of the facts of 
the matter will not be so clear. And of course, Trump will certainly attempt to try and capitalize on, you know, fear of terrorism as a reason to, you know, build his wall and, and sort of electrify or, or rally his base around that particular proposition. Um, you know, I, I do think that there might be more of a tie to the impeachment probe than sort of just in public opinion. And that's that while Republicans in Congress have been able to compartmentalize, the president doesn't really compartmentalize. He really views people as either like on his side or not on his side. And so to the extent he has deteriorating congressional relationships, sort of broadly speaking, I, I do think that we will see that manifest kind of across because he actually doesn't know how to um, create sort of specific alliances with people. You know, and, and look, Republicans may well face a decision point in which they have to decide whether or not they are more likely to get what they want, uh, either in terms of limited, you know, uh, achievements out of the White House in the, in the final year of an administration, uh, or in terms of strength heading into 2020. You know, are they maybe better off with a President Mike Pence going into a, to a 2020 election? Right. So these these are the types of calculations, and so I, I do think that it it does factor into how strongly the GOP is willing to sort of come out swinging. And you actually did see the, the you know, Republicans in Congress, um, you know, find an awful lot of sort of um, courage for the president after the Mueller report when they all felt emboldened as if they were traveling in a pack to get out there and sort of really try and go on the counteroffensive and lay down a lot of fire on the president's behalf by way of um, of trying to tamp down on, on the findings uh, of Mueller's inquiry. Um, and here, actually, you don't see Republicans that are willing to do that. And I do think part of that is a sense that the president is actually at this point not delivering what they want to see, that they actually aren't comfortable with him. And so I think that the more acutely Republicans in Congress, especially Republicans in the Senate, are feeling sort of the eccentricities uh, of the Trump presidency and the discomfort, um, you know, that, that will manifest in how strongly they're willing to defend the, defend the president, how much they're willing to, to stick their neck out, and that, you know, that there are voters, not in Trump's committed base, but sort of Republican voters who do look to members to sort of see how uncomfortable are you with this, right? Not just Mitt Romney, but, you know, I don't know, name your generic cowardly Republican, Marco Rubio, right? There are people who look at Marco Rubio and think, well, you're a Republican, I'm a Republican, you're not crazy, I'm not crazy, uh, you know, how upset are you about this? And so I actually think sort of those atmospherics will have some sort of, I don't know, general um, impact on on impeachment. But I also think we should acknowledge the impeachment polling we're seeing is astonishing. You know, Richard Nixon, there weren't more people who supported Richard Nixon's impeachment um, than, than were against it, than opposed it until the final poll before he actually resigned from office. Donald Trump is already there more than half of people believe, not in an impeachment inquiry, that he should be impeached. And like Republicans in Congress have got to be looking at those numbers as well. Ratings are not good. They're not, not good. good. All right. Let's move on to object lessons. Uh, ben, you want to go first? So my object lesson is a book called Mr. Putin, Operative in the Kremlin. And it is by our Brookings colleague, Fiona Hill, and her co-author, Clifford G. Gaddy. It's a very fine book uh, that anybody who's interested in Vladimir Putin uh, would want to read. It's published by the Brookings Institution Press, and I strongly recommend it. I think, uh, I think people should uh, check it out and uh, learn a little bit about Mr. Putin. Do you think that when Fiona Hill testified for 10 hours before Congress, there were like members and staff with their copy of her book and asked her to I hope it? they asked her to sign it. And, um, <laughs> and uh, you know, uh, and also, you know, back around the time she wrote this book, uh, we had her on the Lawfare podcast and we had a nice conversation with her about Putin's martial arts uh, and ice hockey displays. So, uh, yeah, uh, it's a, it's a good week to check out the scholarship of Fiona Hill, who, uh, has a distinguished career, uh, as a, uh, Russia policy and, and analyst and a, and a Putin watcher in particular. 
first member of uh, La Faire Ukraine. What are we calling it? La Faire Ukraine? La, la, la Faire Luc- Ukrainian. <laughs> to be on, on the La Faire podcast. It doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. It sure does not I'm really, I'm, I'm holding out for, for, for Furman uh, to, to come on the La Faire <laughs> podcast. Or, or this guy Korea when he gets out of the clink. <laughs> they could do a Skype call. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I'm going to do just a little bit of log rolling for uh, for my object lesson. My colleagues and I, uh, a bunch of us contributed to this, uh, I think, really terrific profile that we ran a few days ago of Gordon Sundland, who is – we've been talking a lot about on the um, – on the podcast and it gives you a lot of his background of how he came to be the ambassador and kind of came to be involved in this mess. And I just think if I were writing the movie of this moment right now and I kind of wanted to do it in a sort of not just a straight narrative way but kind of an artful, almost Cohen Brothers sort of way, I really think I would build it around Gordon Sundland. I mean it's what just – What would it be called? I don't know what it would be called. I haven't thought, I haven't thought about that. But I mean it's just, it is just this like – it's kind of this amazing story, you know, of this guy whose parents Portland hotelier, Portland hotelier, exactly, whose parents, you know, fled the Holocaust and they came and they opened a dry cleaning business, and you know, he gets this bright idea one day to buy a hotel rather than just advising people whether to buy it, and he gets into this business and he like politics becomes his, you know, his hobby and his passion, and he is just a bundler and he is desperate to become an ambassador. I mean, it is such a tale of like. Ambition and inarguable success in many of his cases. Not that I've ever stayed in his hotels, but they look really nice. Um, but to, to now find himself in the middle of this, it is just one of the most like delightfully weirdly American stories. Mr. I, Sundland goes, goes to, to Washington. Washington. <laughs> I think you just call it Gordon. Gordon. Can't you see it? Okay. Susan, go ahead. Um, so my object lesson is a tweet. But not just one tweet. It is 1,000 tweets. And this is Daniel Dresner, who um, in early 2017 began a humble Twitter thread in which he started uh, highlighting passages of White House aides and members of Congress um, talking about Trump as if he was a toddler with hashtag toddler in chief. Um, And I think the first one was about once he goes upstairs and starts watching TV, there's no controlling him. And since then, it's almost as if Trump staff has been vying for inclusion in this thread with the ridiculous things that they say. Um, And as of October 14th, Dan added his 1,000th tweet to the toddler in chief thread. Mazel tov to (laughs) Dan on his accomplishments. Condolences to the rest of us on the absolute infantile buffoon who is currently the president of the United States. But for those who have never checked out the toddler in chief thread, it is uh, a true work of brilliance. This might be one of the long. Could this be one of the longest threads ever? I I don't, I, I don't I know. I can't think of anything close to a thousand. It's 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 pretty remarkable, and the thematic density of it, and also the beautiful political science methodology that he's developed for inclusion in it. Uh, is is just wonderful. And the, the final quote that made him reach 1,000 was, quote, he is reflexively contrary, <laughs> said by a U.S. military general. Just print this in a book. He's got a book right he there. He does have a book coming out. He has out, a book coming out about on this. Thread. Thread. Yeah, I yes, think he's he just been writing it in real time before us. Well, good for Congratulations, Dan. We'll object lesson your book when it comes out. Um, but that brings us now to the end of the podcast. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. You can find what kind of merch? What kind of what kind of Sundland theme merchandise could we sell? You can buy one of his hotels. Yes. Branded with rational security, emblazoned on the side on the Lawfare merch store. Yes, at Lawfare RationalSecurity.com. Hotel.Portland. <laughs> <laughs> you can follow us on Twitter at RTL Security. I do not think we've tweeted a thousand times, but we sure appreciate your follows. You can find us on Facebook whenever you download the podcast. Please be sure to leave us a rating and review. It really helps us out and we're grateful for that our audio engineer this week is jacob schultz our show is produced and edited by jen patia howell music this week by the hot hot new british inspired punk band rudy giuliani and the holy hand grenades yes all right you can see that can you just see him like wailing on drums 
or just screaming and screaming like, like animal from the Muppets. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Oh, good for Rudy. Uh, I don't know that Sophia Yan is going to be quick to sign up for that band, but, you know, it's her choice. On behalf of my good friends, Susan Hennessy and Ben Wittes, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.